Now we come to our second speaker, Dr. Robert Fleming. Uh, Robert gained his PhD in nuclear physics in, at Oxford and then worked in IT with IBM and as UK technical director for Cisco Systems. Um, before that, he'd been an air cadet and gained a flying scholarship. He has taken on the role of is it technical director for Vulcan to the Skies? At chief, and now chief executive, and has the job of getting 558 back to airworthy <coughs> condition. And we're all really interested to learn how it's going, how you're doing this incredible job of getting one of these aeroplanes back into airworthy condition. Dr. Robert Fleming. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Can you all hear me? Okay. Excellent. Um, for the next 40 minutes or so, I'll be uh, telling you about the story to return this aircraft to flight. Uh, but before I start, um, let me just ask one question. How many people actually worked on the Avro Vulcan, either during its development, production, or, of course, in the in RAF service? Would you care to put your hands up? Right. Give me your names at the end of the lecture. Um, on a serious note, it is due to gentlemen such as yourselves, ladies if they're here, um, that we are able to do this. If we were attempting it, say, ten years hence, I doubt that we'd be able to um, get very far. Um, now, you'll all be aware that we're getting very close to, uh, firstly, to starting to test the aircraft. Uh, and then uh, the milestone of a first test flight. And what I want to do this evening is tell you uh, fairly rapidly about how we've got here and some of the challenges that we've gone through. This is going to be a bit of a gallop through history. Uh, it's more recent history, but our story actually starts um, at Potsdam in July 1945. I don't need to remind you who these three gentlemen are. Uh, but at this meeting, um, Truman um, was aware that they had just successfully tested the first atomic bomb in New Mexico. Uh, he didn't think that Stalin knew, but Stalin also knew. And Stalin was getting really quite worried about this dramatic new weapon. And his fear was the trigger for the Cold War. Interestingly enough, within about a month of this meeting, uh, poor old Churchill had lost his job and was re replaced um, by, and the name has just disappeared, <laughs> and um, Clement Attlee, uh, on the 31st of August this year, within just over a month of this meeting, actually committed in a cabinet paper that he wrote, he committed the United Kingdom to the development of its own atomic bomb. It's not many people knew that, but it was only a, about six weeks, seven weeks after the US had 
detonated their first weapon, did we ourselves make that commitment. And of course, this is the advent of the famous V-Force aircraft, Victor, Valiant and Vulcan. They were built to deliver this device, which is the Blue Danube weapon, uh, Britain's first production atomic bomb. Um, an enormous device, 20-odd uh, foot long. You can see the scale from the, uh, the engineer. Uh, and about the same explosive power as the Hiroshima weapon, about 18,000 tons of high explosive. And the three V-Force aircraft were developed specifically to take this weapon all the way to the Soviet bloc and to return to whatever there might be left. Um, our focus is on the last potentially airworthy V-Force aircraft. This is Avro Vulcan XH558. Uh, of all of the 300-plus Victors, Valiants, and Vulcans that were made, this aircraft is the only one that is capable of being returned to flight. And I've given you there a potted history of this aircraft. Um, it was, indeed, as Tony has mentioned, the first Vulcan B-2 to enter RAF service in 1960. Uh, and now at the tender age of 47 years old is being readied to return to flight. Um, this aircraft actually has an intrinsic value because not only was it the last aircraft to um, leave RAF service, but it's also the oldest complete Vulcan airframe uh, in existence. So uh, uh, with that record, uh, we're delighted to be working on this. Um, I'm not going to bore you with very many of these charts, actually. I just need to tell you about what we've been doing. This, uh, this whole exercise has lasted some 11 years now. Uh, in 1996, a few uh, dedicated individuals got together uh, with the idea of discovering whether, theoretically, we could return a Vulcan to, to flight. Uh, because we had the common view that this aircraft of all, uh, the aircraft that um, uh, has been developed in the UK, this one actually represents um, all that's good in engineering and in flying. It's a remarkable piece of engineering. Uh, it took us some time to convince BAE Systems uh, that there was a mechanism, that there was a way that we could return the aircraft to flight. And in 1999, um, BA Systems said, yes, we agree with you. We like the uh, project you've put together. We will support the return to flight of Avro Vulcan XH558. Uh, this was key because the regulatory environment in which this aircraft will fly uh, is extremely demanding. Um, the regulations covering the... Um, flight of a complex explanatory aircraft such as the Vulcan, it also covers the same uh, similar aircraft such as the Lightning, etc., require uh, the original manufacturer and all the manufacturers of critical systems such as engines to be contractually providing uh, design support. And so our first hurdle was indeed to bring BA systems on board. Theoretically, we knew we could do it. Then the question was, practically, could we do it? So the next phase was actually looking uh, at the aircraft's uh, technical state, surveying it, uh, asking a number of important questions. 
Then there was the matter of money. I'll come on to say a little bit more about that. This is not a cheap project, as no doubt you all will know. Uh, this has actually cost millions to get this far. That was all under the first phase, which is the preparatory phase. We are currently in this phase we call the restoration phase, which is getting the aircraft back to airworthiness. Uh, we call it a restoration because that's a one-word answer. It's actually an extended major service of the Falcon. We've taken the RAF's major servicing schedule, extended it in some areas, and that is what the aircraft is coming to the end of. Following that, we will return it to flight operations, and we hope to be flying um, for about 10 years. Uh, the limit on that flying life is inevitably engines. Uh, Rolls-Royce have given us a limit that uh, uh, will allow us to fly for about 40 hours a year for about 10 years. And after that, we'll retire the aircraft to a National Aviation Museum. Um, with regret... Uh, but my view is it should never have been grounded in the first place. Um, I'm not going to go through this chart. What I want to do is tell you about some of the things we checked out during uh, the period after we got the yes from BA Systems and before uh, we went for the finance. This is all of the things that we looked at. As you can imagine, the whole point of doing this is we have to do it properly, and I wanted you to get a feel of the sort of things we looked at. It's a lot of work. Uh, but the nice thing we had was an aircraft that um, had been kept in almost operating condition from the time of its last flight. It flew into Bruntingthorpe, Bruntingthorpe Air, Airfield in uh, Leicester, which is obviously where she is today, uh, on the 23rd of March 1993, and from that time was maintained on a 28-day um, a cycle of uh, uh, basically uh, uh, anti um, anti deterioration servicing, uh, and was kept in in running condition. This is actually a fast taxi that the aircraft did on November 1999, just before going into the hangar for the start of restoration. Um, the pilot was perfectly happy with the aircraft at that stage. He would have flown it had he been allowed. There was only one thing wrong, and you could probably all notice it, but the port landing light was out. Um, this picture has some importance for me because I was actually in the cockpit that day. Um, these are the sort of things we went through during the technical survey. Looked at the structure. Obviously, with the materials used on the Vulcan at the time, uh, there were some concerns that with age, with time, with moisture, some deterioration had occurred. Wiring. You were all aware of the issues of old aircraft wiring. Uh, we looked very carefully at the state of the wiring, and indeed on the work that we've done, we've replaced virtually all of the critical systems wiring on the aircraft. System tests and engine tests. Um, I'm not going to go through any of the results of these, apart from a couple of things. Um, I mentioned the materials. This is actually um, one of the front spar bottom booms. It's a mass spar boom uh, aircraft. Um, the engineer within BAE who supports us, tells me it's actually the same as the Lancaster wing, but I don't believe him. 
Um, but this thing here, this little hump there, is an a oxidation process called exfoliation, and it's a result of the type of material used in the wing. And we did find some areas like that in the wing of this, uh, at that stage, um, near on 40-year-old aircraft. Um, one of the questions we asked was, is this a problem? Um, for us, um, the answer came from BAE to say no. They'd actually taken a look at the wing with modern tools and discovered the wing was far stronger than the original designers had, uh, had, had thought, mainly because they were using slide rules rather than modern, modern tools. Uh, and we could actually uh, polish this out uh, and protect the service with no concerns at all. Um, another critical success factor was the engines. Um, those of you who are involved with flying heritage aircraft know that you can repair, restore airframes uh, really till kingdom come. The problem with heritage aircraft is the engines. I don't know if any, is anybody involved with heritage aircraft flying in here? Um, but um, for example, I think it's the Sea Fury that uses the Centaurus engine. Would that be right? There's only one airworthy Centaurus engine uh, in the world, and that's on the Sea Fury right now. When it goes unserviceable, no longer will they allow they be able to fly the Sea Fury. We've actually got eight zero-time Olympus 202s uh, that were in bags and were purchased from the RAF, along with uh, 800 tons of Vulcan spares at the time that the, um, the aircraft was acquired. It is these engines which makes the whole project viable. And I have to say, we had a Rolls-Royce engineer down at the airfield only yesterday, and he's absolutely astounded with the state of the aircraft, of the, of the engines. Um, Rolls-Royce's view is put them in and switch them on. Um, just to, just to, uh, uh, recap, by March of 2000, um, we checked out all the things that we needed to check out to determine whether or not uh, at a reasonable cost, i.e. there weren't any major, major problems, we could return the aircraft to flight. And some of the things we uh, we wanted to see were indeed there. I mentioned the spare sets that um, has, in, f in fact, been absolutely vital for us. Uh, Vulcan documentation, we've got it all. And uniquely for an aircraft of this vintage, uh, there's a complete design record. Uh, in microfilm, 140,000 microfilm records down at um, Avro Woodford. Should I see BA Systems Woodford? Um, we've got training available, and the last thing uh, to find was the third-party support. Um, just a quick word about the start of the restoration of the restoration program. This followed the normal course of a major service, uh, which is basically an inspection followed by a rectification of the problems we found in that inspection, and we found some 2,000 or so individual problems that needed rectification. Um, overhaul, uh, which is where you take all of the system components off and uh, overhaul them either locally or, indeed, in our case, the majority went off back to their original manufacturers. Recovery, which is the state we're in at the moment of building the aircraft back in and then into test. The problem we had in 2000 was finding the money. Uh, that was our estimate at that stage on the basis of quotations we'd be given um, on how much it would cost. Um, and this is a large sum of money for a, um, a, a project to produce a, 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 a non-humanitarian 
objective. Uh, so we really struggled about how we would do this. So we did all the normal things of public donations and um, uh, asking for sponsorship. But our salvation uh, was, as you all know, uh, a major grant from the Heritage Lottery Fund. Um, we managed to hit uh, the right time uh, with the Lottery Fund. Um, they were at the time investing heavily in heritage, and the heritage spotlight shines about 50 years ago. So if you remember back into the last decade, there was a lot of work going on with World War II veterans, with recording oral histories and the like. This decade, there's a real focus on the 1950s, which is the decade of the Vulcan. A couple of things to mention about that. Um, you all heard, I hope you've all heard about the new National Cold War exhibition at the RAF Museum at Cosford, which I hear there's a trip on June the 7th, advertising for you. Um, if, you're, if, you, if you have not yet seen it, it is really worth a visit. It's quite spectacular. And they've got the three V-Force aircraft in uh, the museum exhibition building there. It's, it's well worth a visit. And that's actually a mock-up of what the building was like. But the Heritage Lottery Fund actually took the decision to give the National Cold War Exhibition £4.5 million at the same board meeting that they decided to give us £2.7 million. It's a, sort of their version of joined-up thinking. Uh, but it's been the making of this project. Um, let me just point out one other thing. That's in the top right-hand corner is a book. It's called... Uh, Cold War Building for Nuclear Confrontation, uh, 1946 to 1989. Uh, and it's uh, an English heritage book. As you know, English heritage looks after our built infrastructure. It looks after houses and, and the like. Well, this is all about all those things you never heard about. Uh, it's about the radar bases. It's about the regional centers of government. It's about the, the V-bomber bases. It's about... Um, uh, underground bunkers, atomic bomb stores. It's absolutely fascinating. And they've got hundreds of pictures. I really, really would like to advertise that book for anybody who's interested in the 1950s heritage. Um, this is part of uh, what we now have available to us because we've got a major objective. As a result of the Heritage Lottery Fund grant, they didn't give us the money just to restore an old aircraft, what we promised to do is actually help um, do a couple of extra things. Tell the story of the Cold War. Tell uh, the British public through the medium of flying the aircraft and providing some educational deliverables surrounding it. Tell them about the time of the 1950s. That was the first thing. And the other thing, which I think is just as exciting, is actually to inspire the young in engineering and design. Uh, the Vulcan represented a huge step in engineering design, as we've heard from Tony, uh, from uh, aircraft that were previously built in the UK. It was a stunning leap. Uh, and what is more, it is absolutely awesome when it flies. I'm sure you all remember this. There is now a whole generation of youngsters who have never seen this aircraft fly, and we're convinced that it will be an inspirational sight uh, for them. It may, tell, may take some of them along the path of engineering and design as careers. Um, but this is um, uh, one of the tools that we've got available to us. Uh, it's actually the exhibition that was held at the National Archive three years ago um, on the secret state, all about the British government in the Cold War. 
uh, and it tells the story in a number of ways, a large number of exhibits, and we've actually now got that available for us to use. And the reason why I knew the Clement Attlee cabinet paper existed is because we've got a copy of it. Um, another relatively boring chart, but I just wanted to point out a couple of things. Um, this is us down here. Um, we're Falcon to the Sky Trust. It's a registered charity, owns the aircraft and all the assets. And it's the place where uh, the engineering team, the operations team, and also um, the people involved with fundraising sit. But our extended organization is actually quite big. The key players in that are Marshall Aerospace, who are our engineering and airworthiness authority, and they actually provide the quality structure in which all of the engineering work is done. Anybody from Marshalls here? Oh, oh Graham, I didn't see you there. <laughs> um, alongside them, um, as the original constructor of the aircraft, uh, are BA Systems. Um, we have to have them uh, involved because, as I said earlier, the regulatory environment demands uh, they provide a no technical objection type of support. But also, all of these other companies are in a similar position. So Rolls-Royce have signed up to providing uh, the similar um, support for the engines and so on. You will recognize all of those names, I'm sure. Um, the one that uh, we struggled with a bit, is there anybody from Messier Doughty here? That's a great relief. The reason is, you've no idea, uh, Messier Doughty actually are responsible for the landing gear. You've no idea how difficult it is getting a French company to support a British heritage project. Uh, but we got them on board, mainly because they were the last ones and we could really sort of um, tease them about it. Um, but <laughs> this is actually... Uh, a uh, very important set of companies, and I would say the support has been brilliant. Um, throughout the last um, 15 months or so, a whole set of hundreds of components and systems have gone through uh, the uh, the process of overhaul or even remanufacture, and the sort of support we've been getting from these companies has been amazing. In addition, there are some 100 other companies who are helping us with, uh, with smaller parts, uh, but it is uniquely a great... British aerospace um, effort, this whole project. We're just going to go on a tour of the hangar and workshops. Um, I've gone through most of the boring bit now, so this is going to be a little bit more fun. Um, this is where we are right now. So this is the aircraft almost as she is to today, apart from the fact that it's actually rather better built than it is here. But I just want to show you uh, a sort of a, a, a wide-angle view of the aircraft in, in the hangar. Uh, we'll move around the aircraft. You can see the uh, nose radome is off. That's where the H2S radar was seated. Uh, because of weight and balance considerations, we're actually putting a massive steel plate to represent the weight of the um, radar uh, in the same position. Um, but uh, we, we don't need the radar in that current um, view. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention was the superb support we've had from the CAA. Um, anybody from the CAA here? Right, I can be very truthful then. Um, the guy on the right-hand side is Doug Webb. He's the surveyor from Stansted Airport, who are our local surveyors. Um, 
And I have to say that, contrary to one's expectations, they have been extremely helpful. Um, the golden rule is in all this, you do exactly what you're told to do by the CAA. Don't try and sort of argue with them. Uh, you actually just accept what they say and do it. And as a result, it's been an absolutely brilliant relationship. Uh, that's backed up by guys from uh, um, the design side down at Gatwick. Uh, and I was delighted that Mike Bell, who's the group director of SRG, actually visited us a few um, days ago, 23rd of April, and he was most impressed. Um, it's, it's really, it really makes you feel you're doing things the right way. Um, this is most of our team. Uh, they range from people who worked in the uh, uh, RAF on Vulcans as crew chiefs, uh, through to logisticians uh, and uh, just airframe fitters, uh, trade fitters. Um, it's a relatively small team, as you, as you see, because we are taking a reasonably long time to do this. They are backed up by some six or so uh, technicians who are the um, basically the signature technicians uh, from Marshall Aerospace. Uh, but I wanted to contrast that with this team. Uh, this is the team uh, from the RAF who did a similar job of work on the Vulcans at St. Athen when they were majored down there. There is some real big difference to this. We're taking about 22 months or so to major our Vulcan. These people turned a Vulcan out in some 45 to 50 days. Uh, so, so a rather different approach. Our team, um, obviously... Coming to do something like this uh, uniquely for the first time, uh, one of the first things we did after we'd gathered the team was to train them, and uh, we actually had proper classroom courses, two sets of courses, an initial course, and then what we call level three, which is the in-depth training. Um, that was done in classrooms. We've also had some um, rather um, important aids generated. This board here is one of 90 or so Vulcan technical training boards that were used by the RAF to train their service people in how the Vulcan worked. What we've done is we've digitized those. They're on high-definition images available on the PCs that we've got around the hangar, so people can actually go and look at these pieces of information. We've actually also digitized the 3,000-page uh, parts catalog there is for Vulcan, so we can actually search by part number or by section ref uh, amongst this huge amount of information. This, of course, was not available to the RAF in the old days. Um, we've gone through a very extensive amount of non-destructive testing, uh, 480 different x-rays. Uh, this is a sh this is a x-ray shot being prepared of the uh, uh, leading edge, uh, and no faults found. Um, in addition, uh, we've used some very modern equipment uh, to look at places that have never been seen before. We're actually a guinea pig for Olympus Chemed, who are a medical introscoping service. They make medical introscopes, you know, the sort of thing that you get shoved up you. Um, and this is one that's being used to inspect parts of the wing, which has never been seen. This part of the wing would have never been seen after manufacture, and it's all in superb condition. We are extremely confident about the state of the structure. I mentioned the wiring. We've extensively rewired the aircraft. Uh, all the critical systems have been rewired. As Tony mentioned, uh, the Elevons actually rely on electrical power to drive 
to uh, drive the motor that drives the hydraulic pump on each on each powered flying control unit. Uh, and this is a replacement wiring for that. Uh, we've got um, a number of system components. Um, this is a bit of a saga, this one. Uh, this is the air conditioning unit. Um, note, there's no electrical power being supplied to this. It's a marvellous piece of engineering, but you it's driven by um, uh, engine uh, compressor air uh, on the aircraft. We're using a Palouste, but it produces extremely cold air out of the end. You can see the condensation emerging. Marvellous piece of engineering, and this is a brand new one that was in our stock of 800 tonnes of spares. Um, we've actually made... 47 different system deletions on the on the aircraft. Um, Tony mentioned the military flight system. That's one of them. Uh, this remarkable piece of uh, equipment um, that Tony showed earlier actually drove two instruments called the attitude director and the beam compass. Uh, and those were just indicators because behind that was a unit containing six different gyros that all had comparisons between them. It's a huge piece of kit. Uh, and it's very expensive to maintain. We were told that if they could do it, Smiths would charge us £25,000 each for each of the six gyros. Not a game we wanted to be in. So we've actually replaced it with a modern system. This is a Bendix King Comfort system coupled to a Garmin GPS and just with a normal GA artificial horizon. And that's what's on the aircraft now. Net price, £37,000. So it's a no, no decision from that point of view. A large number of the other operational systems have been uh, physically deleted. So the navigation and bombing system, which is a, a radar-based um, uh, sort of guidance system, chaff flare, um, the rear warning radar, you can imagine there are all sorts of systems, down to individually the, um, the ration heaters. Those have all gone. If uh, Once we've finished the cockpit, if you walked into the cockpit now as a Falcon pilot, it would look very different uh, from what you would have remembered. Not quite glass cockpit, uh, but um, getting near. We're now um, getting to the end of the recovery stage, where that green arrow is, uh, and beginning to think about test. Um, we've actually ordered our first load of um, fuel. 37,000 litres will arrive next week. Um, and uh, hopefully uh, the week after that we'll actually start fueling up the, the aircraft. So we, we're gradually getting there. Uh, I'm not going to commit any dates. Uh, it would be absolutely the wrong thing. Uh, I will commit that we're going to be starting testing very shortly, uh, but as for things like first flight date, we can't do it. I mean, we just don't know what we're going to experience during the functional test. So um, let me forestall that question before you think of asking it. Um, we have been very lucky in some of the equipment we've got at our um, um, at our fingertips. Um, a lot of the test equipment that's required for functionally testing the aircraft is available. Uh, this is one example. That blue stand there is the test stand for the Vulcan's fifth engine. That's the airborne auxiliary power plant, uh, and the test stand below it uh, has been used to ready... Um, the four spare AAPPs that we have in our set. That's actually uh, been done under the Goodrich banner. Um, Pound flying control units, those have all been overhauled. This is actually two of the units going off to uh, 
Smith's Aerospace at Wolverhampton for servicing. Uh, we've received those back, and those are now hanging off the aeroplane. Um, much work on the landing gear. Uh, landing gear, um, this is where, interestingly, we're using some of the more modern design criteria. Uh, you may not know it, but the Vulcan did not have any ground-air-ground cycle limits on its undercarriage. It was all done on flying hours. Um, and likewise for the engines. Um, but people nowadays want tighter criteria, so we've actually had to get involved with some really deep strip work on the landing gear. Uh, this material is an old aluminium um, alloy forging, and it's not exactly the sort of thing that you would use nowadays. However, um, all of the inspections have been done, and it's actually all perfectly airworthy. Um, We've got 14 fuel tanks on the Vulcan. Each of those has got a bag uh, to contain the fuel. Uh, these uh, bag tanks have been overhauled, and in fact, we've remanufactured two uh, down at Fireproof Tanks at Portsmouth. Just to give you the scale, that's a door there, uh, and you can see roughly how big this is. Um, major milestone we had um, on the engines, there's a... Uh, a unit which controls the fuel flow called the chassis-mounted fuel system. Uh, it basically governs the fuel flow depending on engine speed, atmospheric conditions, and the like. It's actually a, a completely mechanical unit, and all of these uh, we actually we had to get overhauled because of um, CAA requirements. They they've got rubber diaphragms in them, and what you don't want is a runaway engine because that's a very dangerous thing to happen. Uh, so these units, all, all eight un on all eight engines, have been overhauled by Goodrich. Uh, it was a Lucas unit. Lucas were taken over by TRW, who then sold that business on to Goodrich. But Goodrich have actually been brilliant. Is anybody from Goodrich here? That's a shame. Plug was missed. Um, but we have actually had to manage this quite carefully. Getting components back on time has been a real tricky uh, process for us and we've been using a, a uh, sort of traffic light type um, chart. Uh, this is a real chart from March and you can see some of the suppliers, key suppliers there and where we were with various uh, elements of the um, uh, overhaul and supply activity. I um, don't want you to read it all, I just want to get, get, give, the, give you the view that will tell you this is actually quite a complex uh, project. Uh, but we've been quite novel in our approaches to this. One of the things we've been doing is using the web. Uh, this is a marvelous tool called Issue Manager. And what it allows us to do and allows all of our supporting companies to do is actually find out exactly what is the pro what the state of any particular problem is using the web. So they've all got their user IDs, they log on to the web, they turn up our issue manager, and they can see where, where things are. It's been an incredibly valuable tool. And at this stage in March, if I can get there, uh, we actually had 49 different problems. Um, so the impression I want you to get from this is it's not all been plain sailing either. Uh, it may seem sort of quite glib, etc., as I present it, but it's been an awful lot of hard work for a, quite a big team. We've had six people in the logistics team resolving all these problems, uh, and it's uh, it's been uh, quite a quite an education. 
Over this time, we've actually seen inevitably with aerospace projects a price escalation. I mean, despite all efforts, you put every single sort of, are you sure that's what it's going to cost type of questions in at the start. We've actually come out with a, a rather significant uh, price increase, which, we, which we're, 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 we're wearing. I, I um, want to remind you back in um, July, August of last year, we went through a really difficult phase, but we went out to the um, um, uh, the public through a, a pretty intense media campaign and actually asked for the money uh, to take us back on track. Uh, we asked for 1.2 million and we got a shade more. It's quite extraordinary. Uh, so in 21 days, in August of last year, uh, we raised this money to, to allow us to keep, keep on going. Um, I have to admit that um, Sir Jack Hayward... Um, who is a really big supporter of everything British, came forward with a, uh, a donation of half a million pounds, which, which was just fantastic, uh, that we got notice of about four or five days from the uh, end of August. Um, and we did it, and we were able to carry on. It was the most extraordinary time, I have to say. Um, I don't know whether or not anybody was at this event, but on the 31st of August, we actually rolled the aircraft out of the hangar uh, as a thank you uh, to everybody who'd helped us uh, reach that target. Uh, since then, we've been moving forward. We've done a number of things. Uh, this is a mod that we needed to put on the aircraft. This green thing here is actually a strengthening mod for the rear spar bottom boom, uh, and it actually extends the fatigue life of the aircraft by quite a, a considerable amount. Uh, this is an important mod for us. Um, we've done a lot of work on the... Uh, Elevons. This is actually something we had to outsource to a company called Beagle Aerospace. Sorry, Beagle Aircraft that was not Beagle Aerospace now. Um, the Elevons on the Vulcan are really quite big structures. You can see the sort of scale of them on this chart. Um, they're all extremely uh, well balanced. Um, they're actually made of majority of magnesium alloy. Uh, but mag alloy, as no doubt you realize, doesn't react with water very well. So by the time the Beagle had actually come to take the skins off and had a look at the internal structure, um, we learned that the um, the restoration was going to be quite um, a lengthy process. We, we got a quote originally of £100,000 to do this, but unfortunately um, Beagle came back in March, just literally a couple of months ago, and told me the bottom line, 283000 So I'm just sitting here with a big, big... Uh, Big liability at the moment. Uh, but the, the Elevons are back on the aircraft, and it does look absolutely superb. This is an aircraft now which is almost... Um, um, the, this photograph was taken about three or four weeks ago. Um, you'll see the Elevons were fitted onto the aircraft, and we've been gradually returning the aircraft um, to its full configuration. Uh, we've, uh, we've suffered one more problem which has actually uh, emerged rather late in the day due to um, uh, a late finding on our inspection, and that's in the roofs of the landing gear bays where there was a lot of corrosion discovered on the ribs and stringers. We actually have to lift the planking and uh, remove, replace a number of the strings. It's taken a long time to do this work. We had 18 contractors working on a 24-hour shift to get this all done in time, but it's been quite an expensive, extensive exercise, expensive too. 
uh, but it has again raised our our price. We're in we're pretty close to the final figure now. I want to say uh, because we are so close to the end. So uh, all of the external work um, in third-party companies has now been completed, and we know um, we know the bottom line on that one. But it does mean that we're still looking we're still looking for money. Uh, and outside, you will find. Um, let me just tell you about these now, so that I don't forget. This is our marvelous perpetual lottery, uh, which, in return for which, uh, uh, you have the chance of winning 580, 558 pounds every month. Uh, you need to put in a standing order, um, which is equivalent to about a pound a week. Um, but it does help us uh, with our forward funding to keep the aircraft flying. I've also given you the opportunity to pick up one of our supporters club leaflets. And if you're that way inclined, there's literally tons of Vulcan merchandise that you can buy. So those should be outside for the, uh, for the end of the meeting. Where we are today, um, I took a quick checkpoint. We've actually got two engines installed uh, right now with numbers two and three installed. Number one, numbers one and four are going in next week. Landing gear is going on next week, so we're really accelerating through the work. This is rather like you know, painting a room. There's tons of preparatory work, and then suddenly you slap on the paint and it's finished. That's exactly what we've experienced here. There's been absolutely tons of preparatory work, but now the recovery of the aircraft is proceeding really quite fast. Um, some, uh, the vast majority of the fuel tanks are ready. Uh, oxygen systems complete. Hydraulics are nearly complete. Uh, pneumatics are complete. Uh, fire detection suppression is complete. Avionics fit isn't complete because we're having to put a couple of extra aerials on it. Where we are right now, I will disown any report of these dates. So are there any journalists in the audience? <laughs> um, we're going to be starting system tests uh, very, very soon now. Um, air test, uh, because of a problem we've got with the PFCU motors, um, I don't think the mid-June date is achievable. Uh, but when we get to fly, it'll be under Marshall Aerospace's uh, direction. Uh, we will be flying as as part of Marshall Aerospace. And the sort of um, what what we'll be doing then is a very short first flight just to check out the systems, the basics. Then the second flight will take us up to RAF Waddington, uh, where um, we're absolutely delighted. They've they've um, they've said to come and do your shakedown flying at Waddington. Um, that's important. We don't actually have a compass base at Bruntingthorpe, so we're going to go up there and do important things like swing the compass, etc. Uh, and then we've got this air ground workup. Uh, all of this is done under B conditions, so we won't be doing any display flying. We might appear, but it won't be a display. Uh, and after that, we do the application for a permit to fly. What are you laughing at? Uh, if you want to find out the very latest, uh, do visit our website. Um, there was an engineering update put on only this morning. So if you want to go there, it's a good way of keeping track of what's happening. We will publish news on uh, on the project. Um, before you ask, the first test flight will be uh, media only. We're not inviting the public uh, to the first test flight. Our plan for flying the aircraft will be um, roughly um, 12 or so display days a year, and obviously we can do multiple events on on a day uh, during the display season, May to September. 
after that, during the out-of-season, we'd like to actually use the aircraft productively. So on the currency flights that we have to do, we may well fly to an RAF station, leave the aircraft there for a few days alongside the educational vehicle that we're we're planning to have so that we can get some uh, uh, some exposure to the uh, to the aircraft out of the air show season uh, just to tell you our gross costs uh, before anybody asks for the 40 hour flying season including all of the public benefit delivery that's the education etc is about 1.5 million per annum lastly uh, inevitably the question of environmentals comes up um, we are, as you all know, an extremely noisy aircraft, and the airfield at Bruntingthorpe is a, an unlicensed, non-active airfield. It's actually in good condition because it's used for car trials, so the runway's, runway's in good condition. But we have no option to take off from there. I just want to show you this chart. In the middle, horizontally, is the runway at Bruntingthorpe, and the red splodges, which you can't read, uh, are actually the villages that have sprung up around the airfield. We, uh, with some trepidation in the middle of March, invited all the local uh, community representatives in to Bruntingthorpe for a briefing, thinking we're really going to be hit on this one. Uh, but I'm delighted to say uh, that the local community is completely on board. They're very proud of what we're doing, and it was uh, really very heartening. Um, so, assuming the uh, weather is uh, in the traditional direction, we'll be taking off towards Lutterworth, which is that big blob there, which is about two nautical miles away from the end of the runway, uh, and then uh, turning either left or right to complete a circuit. Um, our major problem is that blue thing, which you will recognize as the M1. Uh, so um, <laughs> we've actually engaged the police, fire service, ambulance service, etc., because what we don't want is to sort of create a... <laughs> That is on, on the M1. But we just, as you, as you would imagine, we have been thinking about all this. Um, uh, really, just to finish off then, um, I think I've gone a couple of minutes earlier. Um, it is a unique project. Um, nobody has ever attempted to do this, uh, before. Um, and, uh, it's, it is, um, I think a remarkably exciting one for, for everybody. Uh, we do have a very substantial amount of public support, as we proved back in, in August of last year. Uh, it is a lot bigger than just restoration and operation of the aircraft. We've got an enormous story to tell, not only of heritage value, but also the engineering side of it and the excitement side of it. Um, and uh, I'm really going to be looking at the reactions of people who've never seen a Vulcan before, uh, because I expect it will be somewhat of a surprise. Um, with that, uh, obviously I'm available to answer any questions. Um, there's so much I haven't told you, but uh, I think I'd better stop there. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Robert, for telling us about this unique and... Good evening. Thank you for a wonderful lecture. Safety uh, with the fuel tanks. Are you mm -hmm. using the system of fuel out nitrogen in? 
No, um, there's air over the fuel. The, uh, the fuel tanks are uh, pressurized, uh, but it's air. It's, it's, what's important to realize is how ex-military aircraft are certified as, fate, uh, as, as safe for flight. And the way it's done is by reference to um, the in-service safety record and the configuration, the build standard that was used there. So what we're doing is actually taking the aircraft back to a certified build standard for which the safety record is known. That's the way that the CAA certifies it fit for flight. In the particular take, uh, cases of the fuel tanks, uh, there will be pressurized air above, above the fuel. Once you've got the aircraft flying again, will you take your sights to Concorde? That's one question. The other question is, how much do you earn, will you expect to earn per year by showing the aircraft at our shows? Okay, uh, did everybody hear that? Uh, first question was on Concorde. Um, some time ago, I was actually asked by the Save the Concorde group what my view was. Um, uh, to be honest, I think that they've... Um, stumbled at the first post. It was very obvious when we started with the Vulcan project, the first thing you needed to do was verify whether or not the original constructor was willing to support the flight of the aircraft. And I have to tell you that, unless you don't know, that um, it was Aerospatial, I think, is I'm not sure of the organization here. It may be part of Airbus industry or maybe directly part of um, EADS. But EADS said absolutely categorically, no, we are not going to provide design support for uh, a, a, a Concorde flying after its uh, commercial life had finished. And I think that's, that's the end of it. Um, from my view, if you haven't got them on board, uh, you're, you're dead in the water. Um, it's a great shame, but I think it's probably the right decision. Um, the other question, which was... Income. <laughs> oh, yes. Right. There are several revenue streams associated with, with flying the, the aircraft. Um, that figure of 1.5 million per annum uh, is actually found through about a dozen different revenue streams, only one of which is the appearance fee. The airshow industry in the UK is actually vibrant. There are about 6.5 million people who visit airshows every year. It's the second biggest outside spectator sport, spectator activity after football. Um, and uh, the, the various air shows have different characteristics, uh, but they all do pay an appearance fee to the items that appear. Uh, we're positioning ourselves in terms of cost at the same level as the Red Arrows, who are uh, the most expensive item in the UK. They actually charge, well, they did last year, about £7,000 per display. So if they appear sort of once on a Saturday, once on a Sunday, that's £14,000. The demand for the Vulcan is very high. I know that if I charged £30,000 for a display, people would, you know, they'd flinch, but they'd probably pay it. But it, the downside of that is it would wreck the airshow display market because it would price everybody else out. I mean, they'd, they'd afford one item, as it were, and everybody else wouldn't, wouldn't, they couldn't afford to pay it. So we made a policy decision to position ourselves uh, alongside the Red Arrows. So my base price is actually £7,000 per display, and we've actually broadcast that at the Air Display Association, so uh, just to position you. But there are uh, the big revenue stream for us is actually commercial sponsorship. It's rather like Formula One, but different. Uh, Tony Houghton, ex-Vulcan Navigator. Oh, hi. 
You haven't mentioned much about the aircrew. I wondered what the vintage was and uh, what the training involves. The vintage or veteran. Uh, um, the the aircrew that we have assembled to fly the aircraft are um, ex-Vulcan aircrew. Um, the first team that will fly the aircraft on the current plan uh, is my chief pilot, uh, squadron leader David Thomas, who was the last pilot to fly um, the Vulcan into Bruntingthorpe. Um, he's also got terrific experience as the he was the bomber leader pilot, the Avro Lancaster pilot for some time on the BBMF. Um, absolutely brilliant guy for for the display of the of the Vulcan. Um, he will be uh, alongside um, Al McDickin. Al is uh, you know Al, don't you, Tony? He's actually uh, I think still under contract to BA Systems as a test pilot. He's a very experienced test pilot. He'll be in the He'll probably be in the left-hand seat, David, in the right. And then behind them will be um, uh, squadron leader Barry Macefield. Again, he's a retired squadron leader. He was the AEO, Air Electronics Officer, on uh, the last Falcon. Uh, and it will that be t that team of three that will fly the aircraft for the first time. We've actually got an aircrew pool. There are two more pilots. One of my co-pilots is Martin Withers. Those of you who read Falcon 607 would recognize the name. He's itching to get back into <laughs> um, We've taken out the bombing gear, by the way. Um, uh, Mike Pollitt, and there, there are two or three other people who have gone through um, the Vulcan Operational Conversion Unit as late as the early 80s. Um, my aircrew currently are all over 60, so we are looking for the younger aircrew. And we do have the opportunity for training up um, pilots with the right qualities and the right experience onto the aircraft. Could I ask about uh, uh, supply materials? Uh, for a number of years now, uh, materials have gone over to uh, American s uh, specification, mm -hmm. uh, hidamidium rivets to dual rivets and things like that. You've already mentioned that you're using mag alloy. Is those materials still supplied in this country to the British spec, or are you having to use American spec with uh, potential problems of electrolytic reaction? Well, it's interesting. The, the, the case of the Elevons, where we needed Magale, we did actually have to go to the States to get the right material, because they were so finely balanced, we actually had to go absolutely for the spec we needed for that material. Um, Yes, we have discovered that there are some materials that we have not been able to find, and one of the design changes required is actually a material substitution type change. Um, primary example is the deletion of asbestos. Um, there are certain areas in the aircraft where asbestos was used, um, and we've had to replace that. A uh, good, good example would be the seals that are used on the hot air ducting system. Those were all original um, asbestos-containing seals. They're now replaced with a modern material, which has got, I think, glass in it. Uh, yeah, there's, there's been a, a lot of work, um, but not as much as you might think. Uh, a lot of materials, especially the imperial gauge stuff, are still available. Remember, remember the VC-10s are still flying. VC-10s are actually only six or seven years younger than the Vulcan. There's a lot of stuff on the VC-10s that um, uh, is still in use, and indeed, um, the 
techniques that were that are being used to keep the VC-10 flight flying have been of very great value to us in uh, taking this aircraft through uh, its restoration. Could I ask um, rivets? Uh, British mm. rivets are 90 and 120 degrees. American rivets are 100 degrees. How you We've haven't it... found any problems getting British rivets. You mentioned that this is the, the only V-bomber that could be returned to service. Why yeah. is that the case, and were there any other contenders? Um, well, let me, let me just go through these one by one. The Valiant fleet, there's only one Valiant left, and that's the one that's actually at RAF Cosford in the museum there. The Victor fleet are all time-expired in terms of fatigue life. You'd never fly one of those. I don't know if you've ever grabbed a Victor wing, and you can actually get it to oscillate. <laughs> It's a very, very bendy wing. Um, of the Vulcans that uh, are in existence, um, there are um, two other Vulcans that are capable of uh, taxiing under their own power, and two other Vulcans that are actually in uh, under cover. They're in uh, 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 museums, which internally in museums. Those are the only ones that you could possibly consider returning to flight. Uh, of the ones undercover, the one at Cosford has spent years and years and years outside and is internally very badly corroded. Um, the one at Hendon actually had to be cut up to get it inside the um, uh, the museum building, so that's a no-no. Um, of the two that are taxiing, one has got 300 series Olympus engines, so that's a no-no from a safety point of view. And the other one, Vulcan XL46 down at South End. Um, has actually been kept in a running condition, but only by doing all sorts of botched... Sorry, is there anybody from Falcon Restoration Trust here? But they, they've done a valiant job of keeping it running, but only but only through, through non-certified mods. And the thing about our aircraft is we were very, very careful to make sure that there was complete continuity from a technical history point of view from the day it left the RAF to today. And without that unbroken link... You wouldn't, you wouldn't even get a sight in from the CAA. So, you know, by per process of deduction, it is the only V-Force aircraft that can fly. Uh, apart from the removal of the, uh, the radar system causing mm -hmm. substitute ballast in place, you said, has the uh, removal of other systems facilitated you know, similar ballast being pulled? Yes, yeah, so the weight and balance is actually critical. Um, we, we've re removed probably the best part of... Um, five or six tons of kit from the aircraft. Um, we know what we've removed, obviously. Um, but we have to return the aircraft to the same uh, minimum weight as it was released to service uh, and the same C of G uh, situation. Uh, and that is actually um, the subject of um, quite detailed analysis. We're doing our first way um the week after next, getting plane ways to come in and weigh the aircraft because we want to see whether or not our forecast weights are actually uh, correct. Uh, but basically, we are positioning, adding ballast at the right places to return the aircraft to the same weight balance configuration as it was with all of this kit on. And we have to do it. it, it um, BA systems have already uh, made it very clear that the aircraft has to be uh, returned to its original um, flying flying weight. No, we, we're not going to get a go faster, very light one. <laughs> I mean, 
Is, is the plane going to be able to go to its maximum velocity? No, no. We're limited. Um, the aerodynamic limitations um, that are, are really quite important. Um, we're limited to 250 knots maximum airspeed normally, but if we're with the Reds, it's up to 300. Uh, we're limited to 17,500 feet maximum altitude. Um, obviously, at that height, Mark number doesn't come in, come into it, uh, but um, we, we wouldn't be uh, thinking of of, uh, of that at the moment. Um, and we're actually only we're only going to take it up to I think 1.8 g actually, Tony. Um, those are sort of limits that we're we're working with at the moment. Please can't have a flight. Um, another condition: no passengers. The CA have made it very clear that um, they will not entertain us taking passengers. That's that's fair enough. Um, our tactics on this one are really to gain experience and to um, get some flying hours under our belt. Then, you know, if people become more confident in our operation, we'll see. But at the moment, no, I, I'm not going to even get a flight, which is a shame. But anyway. We could go on for a long time, but I know people have trains to catch, so I'm afraid I'm going to have to wind up the discussion now. Mm -hmm. I'm very sorry, because we could have gone on a lot longer. Thank you again for a super lecture Thanks very and much. for handling the discussion. Could I ask Mick Oakey to, where's Mick, to uh, propose a vote of thanks? Oh. Is this microphone on? Can everybody hear? Um, a few minutes ago when Robert was talking about uh, timings for the testing and so on of the Vulcan, he was saying he hoped there were no journalists in the room. Well, <laughs> there is one, but uh, I'm here tonight in my uh, historical group capacity, not my aeroplane capacity, so don't worry. Um, we've had two excellent speakers in, uh, in Tony and Robert this evening, um, and I think with the, the combined experience and expertise of, of Vulcan veterans here in the room, that they've made the, the third corner of the tin triangle, so it's been a memorable evening and a, a terrific turnout. We've had a lot of answers to questions about the Vulcan. Of course, the, the, the big answer, the unanswerable question was, when's it going to fly? Um, the, best, the best we can hope for, I think, is the, the aviation fortnight. In other words, any unspecified multiple of two weeks. <laughs> but, but obviously, we're, we're all looking forward hugely to, to that event. Um, there's something special, isn't there, about big Delta aeroplanes? Somehow, Concorde and the Vulcan capture the public imagination like no other jet aircraft. And I think that bodes very well for the, the future of the Vulcan coming back into the sky. A couple of things that Tony said in his splendid lecture also bode well for, for XH-558. One thing he said was, it's a wonderful aircraft to demonstrate. Um, and another thing he said is, it's a magnificent showstopper at any air show. Now, that won't have changed in the 15 years since we last saw a Vulcan perform at an air show. So um, I think we should definitely thank our two speakers for, for showing us the, the history of the Vulcan, both in its development and its service and in its preservation, um, and also for showing us, in the words of one of the the clips we saw earlier, the early clips, showing us deliciously the shape of things to come. Please give our thanks to our speakers.